2 Samuel 21 this morning. As we go there, um, let's just pray this morning. I'm going to read the Lord's Prayer this morning, actually, as we begin our time in the Word this morning. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, here as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Hey, Second Samuel 21 this morning. 21 and 22, actually, we're going to hit this morning. Um, it's actually been, I look back, it's awesome now that we have everything online. It's been 49 weeks since we started in the book of First Samuel, actually. But we know First and Second Samuel back in the day were just kind of one thing just on separate scrolls, but they didn't have first and second Samuel. They just had the scroll of Samuel. So it's been 49 weeks since we started in the book of first Samuel. And now the end is in sight. The previous nine chapters we've been through, uh, we've been looking at the events surrounding David and Bathsheba and the resulting fallout that came from the sin that David enacted. And so as we come to the final four chapters of second Samuel here, um, well, they call this actually the appendix. They call this the appendix of, uh, of 2 Samuel. And so these next four chapters, they aren't necessarily in chronological order. In fact, it's commonly accepted that chapter 21 and 22 aren't, like they don't take place after David and Bathsheba. They maybe take place after David became king or they don't really know, but it's commonly accepted that these two chapters took place chronologically sometime earlier than uh, where we're at. And so as we get into chapter 21 this morning, we're going to see three things of importance we're going to look at if you're a note taker. Three things of importance. It'll come up on your screen, I think. And it's this, the importance of covenants, the importance of women, and the importance of men. So let's look at Second uh, Samuel chapter 21 and read along with me. If you need a Bible, now's a good time to grab one from the edges of the room. I won't point you out probably. 21 says this, verse 1, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. Oh, there's one. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So one year, you know, you can go, ah, we're just having a bad year when it comes to harvest. Two years, uh, not great, but you know, things happen, two years. But after the third year, David starts to wonder, okay, what's going on here? So he seeks the face of the Lord, which is a good start and a great lesson for you and for me. Something's going on here. Something isn't right. Let's seek the face of the Lord. And that's what David does. And the Lord answers and finds out that Saul was putting the Gibeonites to death. And in verse two, we see that the people of Israel had sworn to spare them. So do you remember who the Gibeonites are? We learned about the Gibeonites. Uh, they made an agreement with the people of Israel. Remember them? It was only two years ago we talked about them. Come on. I know you in Joshua. Turn to me in your Bibles to Joshua 9. Again, it's awesome that you can go back on our YouTube page and you can look back over two years of recorded sermons and stuff and 
So that's how I know. It was pretty much exactly two years ago we were here in Joshua 9. And so in Joshua 9, the Israelites, um, they fled from Egypt. They've crossed over the Jordan into the promised land. And they begin conquering cities. They begin having great victories against anyone that comes against them. And the Gibeonites, they hear about this going on and they get scared. And, and they put on the rattiest clothes they can find. They put on their like lawn mowing clothes their old dirty shoes, they, they go to the people of Israel, they meet the people of Israel, and they say, they have a chat with them. And so let's see what they say. Joshua 9, I got to go back now to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua chapter 9, uh, verse 8, look at verse 8, 8 to 15, it says, they said to Joshua, they being the Gibeonites, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Verse 12, here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day. And we set out to come to you, but now behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them. And behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Verse 15, and Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So a covenant was formed between the people of Israel and the Gibeonites. And then we all know a few days later, the Israelites found out, wait a minute, you dirty scoundrels. You're not from a far off land. You're actually quite close to where we are. But the covenant was made. The covenant was made. So the elders and the leaders got together and they decided, hey, we got to hold fast to our covenant. We can't just willy-nilly make promises and do what we want. So rather than put the Gibeonites to death, they made the Gibeonites cutters of wood, drawers of water, basically servants for the people of Israel. And the Gibeonites had no problem with that. They were like, great, I'd rather that than be put to death. And so jump ahead about 400 years. It's not recorded for us anywhere here, but apparently now Saul in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah, he began putting the Gibeonites to death. And friends, be careful in your zeal. Zealous meaning great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause. And boy, is there some zeal out there right now, <laughs> isn't there? Whether it's COVID, government, truckers, what your freedoms are. You know, having zeal is good. Having zeal is good. In the book of Revelation, we actually see a church being spit out of the Lord's mouth because they're neither hot nor cold. They're just simply lukewarm. Zeal is good. There's nothing wrong with zeal, but be like David and seek the face of the Lord. Do you remember Peter uh, in the garden when he cut off the, the guard's ear? That was some zeal right there, <laughs> but that wasn't the right move. Just because you're doing something in the name of Jesus doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. So let's keep going and look at what the Gibeonites say to David when he talks back to them. Uh, back in, go back to 2 Samuel. 
verse 3, chapter 21, verse 3 says this, And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So the Gibeonites had no interest in money. This wasn't, they can't just get paid off. They understood their servants of Israel, so they didn't seek a one-for-one genocide-like killing in return, like probably happened to them from Saul. But they did ask for seven sons of Saul to be given to them so that they may be hanged. And it's kind of a troubling story, isn't it? As you read it, you go, what the heck's going on here? But just remember the time period that we're in. This is in the Old Testament, the time of the law. Uh, it's not the dispensation of grace that we currently live in. In David's time, all they had was the law of Moses. And the law said it was eye for an eye. In Leviticus, it said anyone who took the life of a human being is put to death. And so David agrees to the claim by the Gibeonites. Now remember these two things also. Remember these two things also. First of all, nowhere do we see in here where it, no one went to the Lord and said, God, is this what you want to do? Like David doesn't go to the Lord after and, and seek his approval for what needs to be done. Though later we will see rain comes upon the earth. But also remember this, that these seven being put to death, they're not atonement. Though David uses the word atonement, this is legal retribution through the law of Moses. There's only one man, friends, in history who has been put to death that has been a sufficient atonement for us or for any man. And that is our King and Savior, Jesus. When he was put to death on the cross, he was buried in a tomb. And three days later, he was raised again, overcoming death so that you and I may be reconciled to God. Romans chapter 5. Just one man in history that has been put to death that has given us true atonement. Let's keep going. Verse 7 to 9. Let's see what happens. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Ritzbah, the daughter of Aiah, I don't think I said that right, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni, and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. So on preliminary reading of this, this is almost a bit of a disturbing passage, right? You're like, what is going on here? Presumably David had to pick the seven sons that were going to die. He kept Mephibosheth safe because of the oath between he had between David and Jonathan. But Armani and Mephibosheth, a different Mephibosheth, apparently that was a a Steve of the day, a Bill of the day, a common name, a different one than Jonathan's son, and five sons of Mirab were given to the Gibeonites, and they were hung on the mountain. And friends, this just shows the seriousness of God's value of covenants. When it comes to a covenant, God does not mess around. 
He doesn't let you make a covenant lightly, and he doesn't make covenants lightly. The consequences of breaking a covenant are very high in the eyes of God. Covenants are important to God, and friends, this is good for you and me. Because you and I have a covenant with God. Did you know that? As Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, he's having the last supper. He takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it. Remember in remembrance of me. In the blood spilt by Jesus Christ on the cross, we have a new covenant formed with God, which says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And God is not one to go back on his covenants. So that's the first important thing we see here in 2 Samuel 21. Let's look at the second importance seen here in 2 Samuel chapter 1 in the response of Ritzvah to her son being put to death. Look at verse 10. Then Ritzvah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Ritzvah, the daughter of Aiah, the con- I say that different every time I'm telling you, the concubine of Saul had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought them up from there, the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded, and after that God responded to the plea for the land. So culturally, burial and the death process was very important to the people of Israel during this time. Leaving someone hanging is a great disgrace to them, actually. Deuteronomy 21 tells us, tells us that you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So where and how people are buried is of great importance to the people of this time, even more so. I mean, we value it today, but back then, culturally, it was very important. And, and you'll see this as you read through the Old Testament of various, um, you know, whenever someone dies, you always find out where they were buried, how they were buried, whose tomb they were buried in. Think of Joseph. Um, made me think of Joseph as he was, just before he died, he made... Uh, the people promised that he said, hey, when you guys leave Egypt, you got to take my bones with you. You have to take my bones out of here and bury me with my ancestors. And Moses did that. As they packed up and headed out, they made sure to not forget to bring the bones of Joseph as they left. So where people were laid to rest was of great importance and significance to them. And in this case, the sons here, the seven sons are just left out. They're just left out and Ritzpah stayed out there on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them, which beginning of harvest was like around March. And presumably if rain came when the rainy season was, that would have been around like September. So that's potentially six months. She's out there protecting the bodies uh, from the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and just absolute compassion and care from Ritzpah. 
And you know what that compassion and care did? It pointed out the screw up in David. And he took steps to make it right. You know, I have to confess something to you right now. My general baseline tendency is zero compassion. <laughs> I'm just being honest. I, I'm not, a, I, I don't know what to say. That's just the truth. My first reaction is always just get over it. You're fine. Your problems are minor. No one cares. Get over it. <laughs> and I'm a little bit stubborn. And I confess this to you, though, because I'm trying to be better. And you know the number one way that I try to be better at it? If you were a fly on the wall in my house, you would get so tired of being there because all you would hear me doing is asking questions to my wife. Hey, in this situation, did I do this right? Did I say the right thing here? Did I do the right thing there? Should I have done more? Should I have done less? Should I go do this? Should I not go do that? Why? Because my wife is more in touch with caring for people than I am, than I ever will be. And I think, in general, women are more compassionate than men are. Now, please understand what I'm saying. I'm not this next little bit, I'm not saying this is the only importance of women, but in this context, this shows us, reveals to us the importance of women. In this situation, Ritzbah reveals a truth to David that he was showing no compassion, no respect that was deserved in this situation for Saul and his family. Men, I encourage you when you're about to pop a top, Go ask your wife if this is the right thing to do. Or if you aren't doing anything at all, go ask your wife if it's the right thing to do. And if you don't have a wife, feel free to call me and I'll let you talk to my wife. Because <laughs> she'll tell you the right thing to do because she knows better than you or me as the right thing, the compassionate and caring thing to do. I'm just, it's just the honest truth. I know it's a generality, but women in general have a more compassionate, caring, understanding than men do. So David gathers up the bones of Saul and Jonathan from Jabesh Gilead. He gathers up the bones of the seven who were hanged and he buries them together in Saul's father's tomb. The importance of a woman to do what is right. To show us men sometimes what we should be doing, to show love and compassion in the world, to highlight the injustice when no one else does. That's what Ritzpah is doing here. Let's look at the third importance of the text, the importance of men. Now remember, this isn't the only important thing of women, the only important thing of men. This is just what I find out in the text here. Look at verse 15. We'll read right through to the end, I believe. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, sought, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. And after this, there was war, there was a war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai the Hushathite struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan the son of Jer-Oregim the Bethlehemite struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. 
And there was again war at Gath, when there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So there's a lot of names and stuff going on here. So let's just go through them giant by giant. I've got coming up on the screen each giant as we go through, descendant of giant, and we see by what they carry they are, and how many digits they have. They're big, scary guys. The first one is Ishbi Benob. He had a spear weighing 300 shekels, about 7.5 pounds. He had a new sword, whatever that means. And as the Philistines and the Israelites are battling, David grows weary, and Ishbi Benob is out to kill David. But before he can, who comes to rescue him? Abishai comes and kills the giant and saves David. And all the men of Israel go, whoa, whoa, buddy, that was much too close. David, you're too important to the people of Israel. You can't come out to battle with us anymore. You're staying home. So then there's another war with the Philistines, this time at Gob, and the giant here is Saf, the second one that gets recounted. Saf the giant, he was struck down by Sibachai the Hushathite. And then in verse 19, we see another battle at Gob, and it tells us it was Goliath the Gittite. Now, this is a little unclear because we think, well, didn't David already kill Goliath? And in, in um, this battle here, it is actually recounted also in the book of uh, First Chronicles. And there it actually, in First Chronicles, it calls him Lammy, L-A-H-M-I. Who's the, in, in First Chronicles, it says it was the brother of Goliath. So that's probably more likely here that this is actually the brother of Goliath that gets killed. He's carrying a spear like a weaver's beam, which, if you don't know, is about two and a half inches in diameter, about five to six feet long. And Elhanan, the Bethlehemite, struck him down. And then in verse 20, there's a battle at Gath. This giant doesn't have a name, but we're told he has six fingers and six toes, 24 digits in total to make him that much more extra scary. Custom gloves and shoes and everything. And David's nephew strikes him down after the giant taunted Israel. Look again at verse 22 with me says, these four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So the death of four giants is recounted here, and they fell by the hand of David and by his servants. Well, how many giants did David actually kill? One. He, he killed one. He killed Goliath back in 1 Samuel chapter 17. How many did he kill in this recounting? He didn't kill any. But David still gets the credit. David's legacy of being a giant killer began when he was just a young man, and it continued all the way through to his servants killing giants. David was a giant killer, so in turn, his servants became giant killers. If I ask you who your inspiration is in life, you don't often hear someone say, well, my biggest inspiration in my life is my dad. You know why? Because he was so good at sitting and watching TV. He was the best. No, they don't say that, right? They say, it's biggest inspiration is my dad because he worked hard. He loved his family. He cared about me. He pushed me. He loved God. He taught me everything I know. Or, or insert any person into that role. 
And so in the next couple minutes here, I'm going to talk specifically to the men, but this is a fairly universal rule uh, to women and men. But specifically, I'm talking about the men. Your example and what you do, what you talk about, what you think about directly affects the younger men around you. You want worshipers? Be a worshiper. Do you want hard workers? Then be a hard worker. You want men that care for their families? Then men care for your family. You want men that talk about Jesus? Then you talk about Jesus. You want men that will fight injustice? Then fight injustice. You want men that will be zealous for the Lord? Then you be zealous for the kingdom of Christ. You know, COVID, truckers, mandates... I think they've actually been good for Christians because it's renewed a sense of zealousness for God that we didn't have before. But friends, don't be misguided in your zeal in thinking that sending money to truckers or putting Canadian flags on your trucks is doing God's work. If your zeal for the Lord begins and ends with the Canadian government, then we need to reassess where we're at. When Jesus came into the temple in John chapter 2, he began throwing tables over and chucking out all the people selling money and money changers. And the disciples were reminded of the psalm that said, zeal for your house will consume me. You know, we spend more time talking about the daily COVID update than we do talking about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Amen. Did you know that there were 83,576 abortions in Canada last year? Did you know that in Canada, there were 511 human trafficking incidents in 2019 in Canada? Did you know that in 2021, 2,224 people died of drug overdose in BC? Friends, people need Jesus. Yes. Jesus is the answer. Men, be zealous for Jesus and others will follow. We're going to read through David's song of deliverance here in chapter 22. But before we do that, I just want to set you up a little bit, uh, just so we don't go into it totally blind. And it's actually going to come up on screen. Just again, if you take notes, just a little outline of uh, chapter 22. Verse 1 to 20 is David's song of deliverance. Verse 21 to 28 is David's song of reward. Verse 29 to 51 is David's song of victory. And so in verse 1 to 20, the first one, uh, we see a lot of earth-like metaphor. So we'll be looking for that as we read through it. Verse 3 and 4, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. Verse 5, the waves of death encompass me. Verse 9 says, smoke went up from his nostrils, glowing coals flamed forth from him. Verse 14, the Lord has a voice like thunder. He's powerful beyond imagination, yet his arrows are like lightning surgical in precision when he comes to intervene. Verse 21 to 28, which is his song of reward. Um, David calls himself righteous when we read through it. And at first glance, you think, David, you dummy. You aren't righteous. You don't have clean hands. We just finished four Sundays worth of recounting the sin of David and Bathsheba. But the righteousness of David isn't because he was perfect in all he did. Rather, it's because David was a man after God's own heart. He knew his relative position in God's eyes and he always came to repentance. And how much more for you and me now that we have an intercessor sitting at the right hand of God, washing us whiter than snow in the eyes of our father, as long as we confess and repent. The last uh, 29 to 51, we call David's song of victory. 
Uh, actually, look with me, chapter 22, verse 34 to 37 says this, He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made great. You have made, you gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. Out of God's great power, David was delivered, but it's out of God's great gentleness that David was victorious. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, uh, Shazon family to come up. Um, and as they do, I'm, I'm going to ask you guys to stand with me, actually. And what we're going to do is I'm just going to read this uh, song, David's psalm here, uh, right through. I'm just going to read it right through, and then we're going to have some worship after, and I'll pray, and that'll be it. So I'm going to read uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, right through from beginning to end. It says this, Second Samuel 22. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hands of all his enemies. And from the hands of Saul, he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destructions assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The fountains, foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. 
With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He's made my feet like the feet of a deer. He set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Lord, we just anoint you. We call upon you as our rock, Lord. You, God, are our rock and our deliverer, Lord. It's in you we trust, Lord. It's in you we give all honor and praise and glory, God. God, help me be zealous for you. Turn my heart to be full of zeal towards the workings of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We give everything we have to you, God. Lord, turn our country back to you. Lord, turn the hearts of the world to you, God. We want people to become followers of Jesus. We want the name of Jesus to be spread. We want people to confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And we just trust in you this morning, God. In your name.